0: Whenever there's trouble on the earth it causes people to do something it, it makes you begin to look at your life look at the things around you and uh you know every generation is believed they were in that generation i mean if you lived during the days of world war ii and saw the rise of hitler and stalin you know you would have thought they were the antichrist you know there are some other times in history where that if you lived in the of the huns day and you were a roman you might have thought the same thing Well, I just want to encourage you about God being in control with this. This again, it's totally off subject. It's just it's Psalm 33, so I'm telling you that because I rarely ever lie when I'm preaching, but I want you to be able to check me. You know, says uh, the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their story host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars, and he puts the deep into storehouses. It's interesting. What man can't control in the oceans, what has just wreaked havoc on, you know, half of our, our globe, God is able to contain in in himself. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of nations. He thwarts the purposes of peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He chose for His inheritance. We go on to hear that the Lord will keep us alive in famine and all kinds of beautiful things. But when you see this thing and they say biblical proportions on the news, I want you to be encouraged. God has a plan for this entire globe. The nations fit into it and He will cause one to raise up and another to be brought low to bring about His plan. Those seas don't do that without His permission. Nothing happens outside of His scope. In fact, the Bible teaches His eyes are roaming the earth looking for people that He can strengthen. And here's the reality. Out of tribulation, the church grows. The more people face adversity, the more they realize their need for God and reach out for Him. So it's a blessing. I'm not telling you that the horrible atrocities that occur in the world are good. I'm telling you that good can come from bad things. Yeah. Happens all the time. You might even say we're proof of that. You know, not perfect, but. Loving the Lord and good coming from us. So tonight we're going to be in John 4. Y'all go ahead and turn there. John's the fourth book in the New Testament. I know some of you are new to our fellowship tonight and others feel like you've been gone forever and uh, we are so happy you're back. I want to catch you up a little bit with the book of John and tell you a little bit about us because we have visitors from all over tonight in our little bitty church. This uh, obviously was my garage and uh, last year... This, this time of year, uh, we were meeting in our living room, and uh, it was down to about three of us. <laughs> and uh, I believe that the Lord spoke to me and said to convert the garage because we were going to need more space for people and to put 50 chairs in it. And uh, I'm happy to see we've got about half of that full <laughs> here tonight. Um, I didn't know anything about electricity, anything about sheetrock, but we, we figured it out. We even laid carpet. You know, you find a way to do what the Lord's called you to do. We did this for a ministry called Life-Changing Ministries because it's our heart's desire to see each and every person that we come into contact with draw closer to Jesus and their life begin to show that. You can see we're not much on robe and rituals. We don't even have any stained glass or a steeple. But Jesus shows himself to be real in our people. The motto of our church is right above the door. Perform out there what you've practiced in here. You know, I think that a church that talks a good talk and does not walk it is just as ridiculous as a football team that would call the play in the huddle and then walk out to the line and not do it. You know, we're in here repping love, mercy, compassion. We're practicing that so that when we're out there in the world, it's what comes out of us. And that's the purpose. So if you're not entertained tonight, I'm sorry. I mean, I hope you enjoy it. But... The purpose tonight is that you learn something that you can put into practice out there. And that's, that's our goal. Uh, in John 4, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Saint John, however you like to refer to it. We are all saints in the kingdom. We have, uh, have already studied up to a point that I just want to kind of summarize for you so you'll know what's going on. John is a book that was written by the youngest of the disciples. I mean, he was the youngest of the apostles and he's a guy I can, I can relate to. You know, I watched Matthew up here singing about being in love with Jesus. Big old rascal, you know, and he's full of love. He'll hug you. I remember a time when Matt could hurt you, <laughs> you know. That is a change that the Lord has brought about in his life. I can relate to that. I, I had a similar background. Well, John was a son of Boarneges is what his nickname was. I said, this guy's a son of thunder. I mean, he was kind of a wild young man. And he was paired up with a guy named Peter who was twice his age and also uh, an apostle. And uh, through time and the life-changing power of God at work in John's life, he became known as the apostle of love. And that is really what we're all about. The mission statement in the book of John is found in John 20, verse 31. It says, in writing this, I'm writing it that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in believing that he's the Christ, you might find life. The book of John takes it for granted that every human being realizes we're in a state of decay, we're dying, we have need of help, and that Jesus is that source of life. That's that's what the book of John's about. So we've gotten to the fourth chapter, we've passed some really interesting discussions. Uh, A man named Nicodemus came to Jesus and Jesus taught him and There was a real problem in Nicodemus' heart and there was also a problem in this woman's heart in John 4 that we're going to pick up on. And it's the same problem that the United States and most of the world faces today, but especially the United States. We are some, I don't know, 600 years after a great reformation. We are some 2,000 years after um, this gospel has gone out to all of the earth and there's scarcely a corner of the globe where people don't know who Jesus is, who haven't heard of Him. You can't drive down Highway 6 without seeing billboards about Him. And in surrounding ourselves with so much familiarity with this gospel, there's a problem with it. We have fallen asleep with the lights on. And the same problem that they had in Jesus' day, we have today. Basically, these people felt they had no need of help. Nicodemus shows up, believing that he's a teacher of Israel and that he has everything figured out and he really does not need to learn from Jesus. This woman at the well has no idea what's going on. She's a Samaritan who's there, who has lived with five men who were not her husband or five husbands and the man she was living with was now not her husband. But she doesn't know the state to which she needs Jesus. I bring this up because... In America, 80 something percent of us claim to be Christians, and we draw real strict lines, evangelicals and protestants and catholics and all the and we all point fingers and we divide over doctrinal issues. And the reality is, a Christian is marked by what they do, not what they believe, not uh, what they don't do. We're Christians because we don't drink or don't curse or don't they're marked by what they do. The Christianity is an action-based religion. You should know somebody is a disciple of Jesus by their actions in their life. Well, if we apply that test to the world that we see around us, what you begin to see is most people do not practice what they say they believe. So, tonight as we pick up in John, I want to encourage you that our whole goal is not that we're perfect, not that our church, this little church, doesn't have hypocrisy in it like every other church, but that our goal is to be real Christians. And I don't really care what your denominational background is. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a follower of Jesus and no other thing. We don't have to argue about how people are baptized and what name. Whether you drink wine or grape juice or whatever it is. I just want to see lives change. And I believe God honors that. You know, when we worship in here tonight, there's no sense of division. And we all have different backgrounds. We all come from different places. And you feel the Lord's presence here, don't you? I did. In a garage. Can yeah. you believe that? You know, how about that? All right, so we are in John 4. We're going to pick up in the 27th verse. And what has happened is Jesus has gone to an area called Samaria. And Samaria is a place where Jews didn't like to travel through. They would go way out of their way to go around Samaria because Samaria was a group of people that were Jews that had been mixed with other cultures. They were half-breeds. This is the closest thing in biblical days that we have to the kind of racial tensions that were in this country in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. I mean, this was a real problem. And we find out that this king of the Jews, this Messiah who Isaiah called Emmanuel, God with us, was not too proud to associate not just with a half-breed, but a woman at that. The lowest place in the culture of these people. And that he was open with her. He was loving with her. Not at all condemning. Reminding us the church needs to practice this statement, this axiom that James taught. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If all you've ever encountered from Christians is judgment, Christy, you're a bad person. And Brad, you're a bad person. All you do is what's wrong. John takes it for granted that you already know that the things you do are wrong. Instead, he teaches there's a way out. And that's what Christians ought to do. So he's just got through talking to this woman. And uh, he's basically told her that he's the Christ. And in John 4, verse 27, by the way, our topic tonight is going to be the food of God. It says, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? There are encounters that every person has in their life that God set up. Acts seventeen twenty six is that He determined the times and places where you would live and where you would work. He even set boundaries for you, the mountains, the oceans, so that each man would reach out and find Him, though He's not far from us. There are events that happen in your life, maybe surviving a tsunami. I don't know what it might be that cause you to look and go, wow, could he really be who he says he is? And it's a funny thing when a man or a woman comes to that place in their life where they're beginning to wonder, is God really what he says he is? Is the Bible really true? Is what I'm hearing about him really? You're, you're plagued with this other thought. If it is true, if he is real, then something's required of me. Now, it's, it's no secret... Uh, The member of my family was recently in a a horrible, horrible motorcycle accident. And he began to tell me, I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm thinking all of the time about why God spared me. This is a new phenomenon in the man's life. He said, and then if he spared me, what does he want from me? And I was thinking, wow, that's really good. Well, this, this woman's no different. She's had this encounter with Jesus. She's begun to think, could he really be the Christ? Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? (laughs) You know, I love John for another reason. He is so honest. You know, if you were writing this... because. Remember something about the Bible. When you look at the Bible, these are letters. You know, John did not sit down to write a book that would one day be put into a canon of Scripture that would be called a holy Bible. He was writing a letter to someone to tell them about events that he had experienced. Okay? And if you were writing this letter, you might tell of all the times you were the hero when you raised your hand and you got it right. You know? But this guy tells of his weakest moments. Christians are supposed to be remarkably honest about their own lives and look at themselves with sober judgment. So Jesus says, I have food you know nothing about. And the disciples remark, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus does something here that he's already done in the book of John. He's been describing himself as the spring of living water. And there's a reason for that. Every human being must drink water in order to live. You can go some time without food. You can go almost no time without water. So everybody knows what it's like to get thirsty and have to drink to live. Now he's beginning to compare doing the will of God with your need for food, which is really pretty interesting because if you think about our lives, your need for food drives an awful lot of your behavior, doesn't it? It goes so far as to not go beyond your need for food and just enter into your desire for food, huh? I gained 15 pounds in the month of December. <laughs> I would say I exceeded my need for food and went right into my desire for food. You know, my wife's pregnant and I'm the one gaining the weight. Go figure. Jesus was teaching this and speaking about this because what he's trying to convey, and here's here's what separates. Uh, the sheep from the goats, if you will. What he is trying to teach is there are those of us that have such a strong desire to do the will of God that it's like food to us. Now, he's obviously not speaking literally. We see Jesus eat. You know, we see Jesus eat on multiple occasions before and after the resurrection. But he's teaching them, I am sustained by, I live on doing the will of God. Now, this is really important because as you begin to interpret Scripture and as you begin to look at the book of John, I want, to, I want to free you of something here. This was written by ignorant fishermen, for the most part, as led by the Holy Spirit. And what was not written by fairly ignorant fishermen were written by scholars like Paul who said they counted their scholarship as dung. It does not require someone else to interpret this for you. Not Barclay, not Wycliffe, not Huss not anyone. This was written in Greek because all the people of Jesus' day could speak Greek because God had used a pagan by the name of Alexander to conquer most of the world and force the world to learn to speak Greek so that when the Romans came in and built their roads, the gospel could go out on these roads to the ends of the earth and the people would understand it. There were two kinds of Greek you could speak in this day and one was a classical kind of Greek that the aristocracy understood. Another was Koine slang just like we might talk and that's the one that jesus spoke in and he spoke that way because he wanted everybody to understand he taught about simple things precisely so that you would not misunderstand him now everybody understands the need for food now he's equating doing god's will with your need for food he says my food said jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. He said, Lord, how on earth did we go from talking about food to a harvest? Well, number one, they, they ate a harvest. You know, They didn't go to McDonald's and pick up a Big Mac for dinner. But what he was trying to convey to the apostles, uh, then disciples, is for centuries, men have labored to bring Israel, to bring the Jewish people and indeed the world to a place where they were ready to reach out and receive God in a real and meaningful way. You know what the problem with Israel and Samaria was? They thought they already had the grasp on God they needed. It's the same problem our nation has. Are you a Christian? Well, sure, I'm an American. I believe in God. James says even the demons do, and they shudder at his name. Believing in God does not make you a Christian. Believing in God does not even get you close to Christianity. Satan has a firm grasp on the fact that there is a God. He trembles at the thought of his name. The Bible teaches us that. Being a Christian is when you are sustained by doing God's will. Uh, notice, I keep talking about doing God's will. Not what you believe, not what you don't do. You ask most people, are you a Christian? Well, sure. Why? I mean, it's not like I cuss or drink. Did you see something? You know, I don't, I don't smoke. I don't go to those places. I don't do those things. Half the time what they're describing, God's not offended with anyway. You know, I see that Jesus drank wine all of the time. I'm sorry to offends my Baptist brothers, but he did. You know, I'm not going to change the word to suit them. People define their religion by what they don't do. Mm-hmm. Jesus defined it by what you do. Turn with me to Matthew 7. This was an important important verse in my life. I had been raised in and out of church uh, through several divorces. And, uh, oh, I don't know. I suppose everybody these days is... they. Begin to give their testimony or their life story, they could uh, emphasize certain points for it to be dramatic and, you know, to try to pull your heartstrings. The reality is, I had a pretty good childhood. I was informed about a lot of really neat things. I was exposed to a lot of things that I don't want my kids to be exposed to, but they shaped me. They formed me. You know what the most dangerous thing that I ever encountered was? This might surprise you. It was not barroom brawling. It was not topless bars. It was not 100 mile an hour car chases. None of those things. The most dangerous thing that I was ever exposed to was a weak, emaciated Christianity. Something that said, You're okay. I mean, you believe. It'll be all right. And I had no real drawing to Jesus. I had no real sense of anything except I didn't want to be punished. I would pray every night, Lord, don't come back. I'm not ready. You know? I had a sense of guilt. And I wanted to be a Christian and I thought that I was but something inside didn't bear witness with me that I really was. So I gathered around me other people of like-mindedness or doctrine that would teach me I was. Sure, you're a Christian. You believe Jesus is Lord, don't you? Well, yeah. You were baptized, weren't you? Well, yeah. But why is my heart nagging at me every time God begins to deal with me? And this was, this was hard for me. And a man came and he taught. And it's funny. It's, you know, God's a really neat guy. If He wants to get something across to you, you'd think He'd put it in a package that was easy for you to understand, right? You would think, you know, if you were a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Scandinavian, He'd use a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Scandinavian. God's not that way at all. He requires you in the kingdom to humble yourself to come to Him. For you to acknowledge He's higher than you are. For you to acknowledge his ways right and your ways wrong, and one of the ways that he does that right off is he will have the gospel delivered to you by an unsuitable messenger. <laughs> I was standing in a school type church, and a guy in flip flops and blue jeans that looked like a hippie to me uh, stood up to speak. You know there wasn't much more that could have been offensive to me at that time. I was a jar headed jock, you know that was somewhat muscle-bound and what I saw in front of me disgusted me. But he turned to a passage of Scripture that just broke my heart. and I want you to hear it. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom but only He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, I believed I was a Christian. I called myself a Christian, and I could quote more Scripture than a lot of people in church today. I even won the Bible award at my school that year, and I was a total heathen.
1: The one thing I could not
0: deny was I knew I was not doing God's will. So as I'm teaching you this tonight, I'm hoping that what you're beginning to do, because the word... The Word is supposed to be like a man who's looking at himself in the mirror. Not walking away forgetting what you look like, but staring intently into a mirror. Bringing your light your life into light so that you can see clearly there. Because the Gospel is supposed to change you. The Gospel was never meant to leave you somewhere in the middle of the road. It was meant to move you to cold or move you to hot, but move you. Something's wrong when we can sit and hear the words of Jesus and walk away unaffected. Something's wrong when you can lay down next to Christianity and not be moved by it and our whole nation is there. We've had so much Jesus that's coming out of our ears and it it doesn't affect us at all. It doesn't even hurt you anymore to hear Jesus died for your sins because you've heard it always. It doesn't make a dent anymore. We need to soften up our hearts and be moved by this gospel. Turn with me to Genesis. That's the first book of the Bible. And uh, we're going to be in the 47th chapter here for a minute. In Genesis 47, we have a very familiar story to many people. I just want to point out a a verse out of it. But I want to tell you the story uh, quickly. There was a worldwide famine. Okay, A time of trouble that was unlike any other that had come on the globe up to that point. Now, this ought to be sounding somewhat familiar about things prophesied in our future, except this happened in the past. And it just so happened that somebody who had been mistreated, who had been imprisoned by his brothers, who they thought was dead and happened to be alive, was elevated to the highest place in the Egyptian empire, which was the empire that ruled the whole earth. Now you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see similarities here between this man Joseph and Jesus. Jesus who was sold out by his brothers, thought to be dead, but elevated to the highest place in all of the kingdoms of the world. This was Joseph. And listen to some interaction between he and his brothers regarding food. This is Genesis 47, starting in verse 18. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. These people realized that because of a famine that had engulfed the known world, they were destined for death. And they had to go to one man whose name was Joseph, and in the Egyptian tongue was called Zaphonath-Paneah, meaning our Savior. And they were forced by famine to go to him because they recognized they had a need. Everywhere they looked, they saw starvation and death. And they went to him and said, hey, look, man, we, we shouldn't die. We need we'll need. we sell ourselves to you. We will go in bondage to you. We will become your servants if you will give us food. What did Jesus say food was, though? His food was to do the will of God. So what does God really, when you get right down to it, what does He want from you? He wants you to recognize, man, there's death all around me. There's decay around me. Things are not as good as everybody says they are at times. My life's not going quite the way that I think He wants it to. So I will sell myself to You, Lord. I will make my life Your life. And in exchange, give me Your food. And what is food? Food is to do the will of Him who sent me and finish His work. Jesus said, I have food you guys don't know anything about. The truth is they had been traveling all night. They showed up at this well. And Jesus sent the disciples into town to buy food because they had traveled all night and it was breakfast time and they were hungry. Jesus finds this woman at the well. He begins talking to her. He begins ministering to her about the well of salvation. The disciples come stumbling back in and they said, Oh, Jesus, you need to eat something, man. You know, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He got hungry and he got tired because he was a man like you and me. Don't think of him like some of the Paintings have him where he's so super spiritual that he wasn't a man. He was a man and he was hungry and he was tired. But this was an opportunity to look at the disciples who knew he was hungry and tired, who wanted him to eat and say, hey guys, I live for something besides just food. Food to me is to do the work of him who sent me so that they would understand, so that it would make an impact. You know, in the Bible, one time a man named Esau sold all of his inheritance all of God's blessing on his life because he was hungry. He was hungry and he sold it for a bowl of beans, of all things. I mean, come on, you might like red beans and rice. But do you like red beans and rice enough to give up your father's house, your father's name, your father's automobiles, your father's bank accounts, his cattle, his sheep, all of those things? Do you like a single bowl of red beans and rice enough for that? But if a man's hungry and believes he's going to die, He'll give up everything for food. That's the kind of hunger we're supposed to have for the will of God. That's the kind of hunger that's supposed to drive us. So when we're talking about Christianity, you need to acknowledge something. You need to think about something up front. Not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. And that might include you. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom. We have raised up for ourselves pastors who will pacify us, people who will come and make us feel better. Say, just eat this, you'll be okay. Just believe this, just buy this. Just give to this and you'll be okay. And there's no one denomination that's got the market on that sin. All of the denominations have participated in that at one time or another. We're so bad off we can say, hey, it's okay if you're homosexual. We'll just tear that page out of the book. Just send money to my church, you know. We'll raise up for ourselves teachers that will tickle our itching ears. The Bible said there would be days like this, and we're living in them. Now, as you sit there, you begin to think, oh well, you know, I wonder who he's talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about you. i talking about me. The Bible's a mirror. When you read it, you're supposed to see your life. Paul said, Work to make your calling, your election sure. Yeah. See, it was never supposed to be that you had a certificate. On the wall that made you feel sure. It was never supposed to be that mama coddled you and said, Oh, I christened you when you were a baby. And so you should feel sure. You were supposed to have to work to know that you were in the will of God. That when you looked at your life, you could go, You know what? I am working. I'm failing sometimes, but I am working to be pleasing to the Lord. So I know He's with me. And then He gives you things in your life gifting of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit. He shows His hand to be with you. Romans even teaches that His Spirit is in you, testifying that you are a son of God. Truth is, Romans also teaches you are not a son of God unless you're led by His Spirit. The will of God's important. It's supposed to be like food to us. I want to show you something in Mark that might surprise you. Turn now. From Genesis to the right in your Bible, you will pass up all of the 39 books of the Old Testament. You'll pass up Matthew, and you'll end up in Mark. We're not going to preach just a long time tonight. I just hope to make a gentle impression. Maybe not so gentle. (laughs)
1: That's,
0: That's a wonderful thing about not having a big building, not having a mortgage to pay. I can tell you whatever I believe God tells me to say and there's no real consequence because I don't work for you. I work for Jesus. And you may not like everything I say but the book says you have to love me and I have to love you. It's funny how disarming that can be. A man in Chick-fil-A today wanted to beat me up. Oh, no. <laughs> and he wanted to beat me up because he thought our kids were bad. <laughs> I thought what a wonderful lesson you'll teach the children. You're upset that they're pushing and so you're going to beat me up. Yeah, huh? and cuss at us right in front of him and uh, you know what God bless you sir thank you for being so attentive to the needs of our children that you've pointed this out thank you God bless you I guarantee you he will not sleep well tonight I guarantee you because he probably goes to church somewhere and he probably has a mama that thinks that he's a Christian you know and one day when they plant him six feet in the earth there'll be a preacher that stands up and lies to everybody and says oh yeah He's in the glorious here and after, you know. They'll probably play country songs, says prop him up by the jukebox when he dies in heaven. <laughs> you know. But I bet he knows he's not doing the will of God. Now I'm not saying that to be mean to the guy. I love him. I really do. I mean I want to see God change his life. But when you get right down to brass tacks in Christianity, what you believe should be demonstrated by what you do. Yeah. You know? The Jews love that by the way. The Jews have a real hard time with this Gentile version of Christianity that says, well, I believe this, and we argue about theology. And they say, show me by what you do. And they like the book of James, because that's what James <laughs> teaches. I mean, they love it. It's, it's funny. I was talking with a guy in Jerusalem in the Jewish quarter, and he says, your book of James, that one I like. <laughs> and I said, well, good. Watch me with this. <laughs> you know, uh, I told you to I'd turn to Mark, didn't I? We're going to be in Mark 3, just for a second, and then I'm going to get off this and go to numbers. So, In Mark 3, we have a somewhat unusual event. Now, Matthew was a Jew, and um, he was a tax collector who was redeemed from that empty way of life and followed Jesus. And Mark was John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And Mark had somewhat of a rocky history. You know, at times he set out on great... And glorious adventures with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, only to turn back in failure and defeat. But he finished his life fairly strong, leaving for us one of the four Gospels that has gone out to all the nations as a witness of God. I can relate to Mark a little bit too, just like the others. I too have set out on what I thought was a glorious adventure, only to fall on my face. But praise God, he's not through with me yet. If you make the will of God your food that you're living for, you find out grace will cover all of your sin, all of your mistakes. He will lavish it upon you if your heart's just right. But if you think you can cross back, cross your arms, sit back and say, oh, well, he knows my heart. Yeah, he does, and you might not.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, in this book of Mark, we see a time that Mary and the brothers of Jesus slipped a little bit. It's odd because this woman's a holy, wonderful woman in the Bible. I mean, blessed among all women. The angels proclaimed it. The Word declares it. And it's absolutely true. But there was a problem. Mary, who knew these wonderful things about her son and the brothers and sisters of Jesus who were here, who heard these wonderful things about Jesus, were having trouble reconciling the fact that he looked like a regular guy. And so this time in Mark, starting in the third chapter, 20th verse, we see this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. You see, Jesus was not nearly as concerned with food as we might be. He was always concerned with doing the will of God. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now, they set out to take charge of Jesus because he was so hungry to do the will of God that he was doing things that made his family think he was a little crazy. I've been there. My parents threw me out of the house because I went from watching TV with them in the evenings, being just a normal, regular guy, to wanting to read my Bible all of the time, talking about Jesus all the time. And this just happened to be the same year that David Koresh was getting blown up in uh, Waco, Texas. Yeah. Uh, you know, God bless it. I don't know why he chose that time for all of us. But for whatever reason, everybody was seriously concerned When they saw this real change occur, this real abrupt change, as if it were a strange thing. Now, we know from reading the Word that this occurred with everybody who encountered Jesus. In fact, the first words Israel ever heard about Jesus was, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means to turn about. It requires a really abrupt change in your life. It requires that. But I'd been raised in a household that had practiced this lukewarm, watered-down version of Christianity that pacified the conscience but did little to liberate your spirit. Well, these guys have grown up around Jesus and they're having trouble. They're saying, you know, we remember when he was little and now he's doing things we don't really agree with. You might not agree with the will of God, but listen to what Jesus says your mothers, brothers, and sisters are. In the 31st, chapter, or 31st verse, it says this, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Mother and brothers. Not apostles, not disciples, not cousins. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. You have got to get to a place, and this is what Jesus is teaching about this need for food. If you are starving to death, if you are hungry to the point where you feel like you're going to die, you'd be willing to fight for a scrap of food. You, I mean, that urge would come over you to the extent where it was important. Well, when you begin to view the will of God that way, you stop caring what mama will think. You stop caring what daddy will think. What brother or sister will think. And you start only being concerned with what Jesus thinks. What God thinks about your life. Think about this. You remember the little boy Joseph that we were teaching about earlier who rose to become Zaphonoth Panea, the savior of the world, who was a shadowing type of Jesus? How did he get into such a bind? How did he get thrown in a pit in the first place? He cared more about what his father thought about him than his brothers. His father said, I want you to go with him and bring me back news about him. The brothers didn't want that to happen. They wanted to kill a goat, wanted to hide it, all of those things. He cared more about the favor of his father than the favor of his family. More people miss the kingdom of God because they're concerned about what their family thinks. I can't really leave the religion of my forefathers. I can't, I mean, dear God, what would mom think? She would roll over in her grave. The gospel requires you to care less about what mama thinks than what your father in heaven thinks. In fact, he goes so far one time to say, a man sets to the plow and turns back, he's not worthy of me. And if you don't hate your mother, brother, and sisters, you're not worthy of the kingdom. God, that is so strong. Jesus was that way. I have a hard time being that strong. You know why? He was absolutely perfect and he knew there was no area of his life you could go, "Ha! you said that, but look at you. I don't quite have that mastered yet. There are a lot of areas in my life you could throw stones at me. I'm not standing up here as one who's perfected. I'm standing up here telling you what I know to be God's Word and hoping to make some kind of impression that sticks with you beyond just tonight so that your life will change. Because, friends, if your life doesn't change, you've never encountered the Jesus that I know. You're like arguing about what an apple tastes like, never having put it in your mouth. I've learned that a man that has had an experience with Jesus is never at the mercy of a man who merely has an argument about Jesus. So Mary thought Jesus was crazy, and Jesus set the whole thing straight. I said, hey, you want to be my mother, my brother, my sister? Do the will of God. And we know that Mother Mary did that. She even got filled with the Holy Ghost when she was hiding for fear of the Jews in the upper room and went on to be a great person. Uh, from here, turn to Numbers 11. We're going to read two more scriptures. We're going to close. Everybody said amen. They're amen. all happy. Amen. Y'all running for the door. Amen. You see, we, we situated the, uh, the church so that there was one door and the pastor was between the congregation <laughs> and the door.
1: That's
0: when you read, I am the door. Yeah, I, that's right. If you can get through me... Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You know, I've, I mentioned earlier pastors lying at funerals. Uh, this is one of those preacher stories, so y'all forgive me. I hope it goes over well. And there were these uh, two, two brothers who lived in Lafayette, Louisiana. And uh, they were notorious gamblers, notorious drinkers, carousers, revelers. You know, not. Not not Lafayette's finest sons, and uh, one of the brothers died, and the other brother went went to the local priest. And he said, "Look, I know my brother wasn't a good man. We, we all know that, but could you could you say good things about him at the funeral? Could you promise to uh, could you just could you call him a saint?" And the priest was really concerned. You know, he didn't want to lie. He didn't want to violate his oath to God. And he, he was concerned about this. And the man said, look, I'll donate to the church half a million dollars. The priest kind of looked around thought, hmm. He said, all right, a million. So they agreed on a million dollars. The priests were struggling over this. How do I do this? How do I do this? So he stands up at the funeral and he says, friends, we all know that this brother who has died was a wicked person. He's undoubtedly rotting in hell at this very moment. But when compared with his brother who sits here, he's a saint. <laughs> All right, that's the best I could do alright yell in Numbers 11? Yeah, I hope you put the offering in the box beforehand. Huh? The will of God should be like our craving for food. Numbers 11, verse 1. Now, I'm sorry, verse uh, 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks. I don't know what a leek is, but I don't think I'd want to eat it. It just doesn't sound good. Oh, no. Uh-oh, there goes that analogy. Also the cucumbers, the melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it in the ground, and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Now get this, manna means what is it? Because the people looked out and they went, what is it? And then they went out and they gathered it and they ate it. And it was sweet in their mouth. It was good. And it came from heaven. It was something that God rained down for their provision. But after eating it for a while, after living with it day after day, the rabble with them began to crave something else. This is not all that unlike a church that is supposed to be feeding on the will of God, beginning to crave something else because all they've ever known is the church. Have you all ever noticed that kids that grow up in the church often experience this time period in their life where they leave the church craving other food and then hopefully they come back? There's a natural inclination in people To do the will of God for a while, for a season. The Bible teaches that there are four soils that are a man's heart. Only one of the four had the word planted in it and it produced salvation. The other sprang up for a short time only to fall away. If you've made a vow, I mean, this is the time of year when people make vows, right? I mean, it's New Year's. All of us will be thin and beautiful and have more hair next year, right? I mean, that'll be our vow. The Bible says, if you make a vow, don't do it hastily. And God takes no pleasure in fools. So fulfill your vow. Friends, if you have made a vow to do the will of God, if you have pledged your heart, your mind, and your conscience to Him, make good on your vow. Because this rabble that began to crave other food greatly upset God. In fact, in verse 10 we see, Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. Now, I don't know about you, but it bothers me when my boss is mad. It really bothers me if my boss is exceedingly mad. Now, we're not talking about our boss. We're not talking about the President of the United States, Kofi Annan, or even a king. We're talking about God Himself got angry. Why did He get angry? Because He was feeding these people from His very hand something that symbolized the very will of God that Jesus would call His flesh. And they began to crave something else. God's will wasn't good enough for them. Perhaps the way their life was before became a little more attractive. This is those times when you're sitting there and the will of God is right before you and you know it, but it would be so easy to handle it like you used to handle it. It would be so easy to lose your religion for just a little while but it made the Lord exceedingly angry. Moses goes on to complain a little bit here. And uh, Moses complains because he says, Lord, the weight of these people, I mean, it is too much for me. They're stubborn. They don't listen. You know, they have no faith, basically, is what he's saying. I can't handle this. And the Lord said, well, I tell you what, the same spirit I put in you, I will put on other people so you will be better able, better equipped to handle the load. Friends, there's real wisdom in that. There's a reason God anoints more than one person in a church to handle the load, because no person's an island to themselves. Nobody can set out to accomplish God's will and do it all alone. We are made to need to lock arms in battle with one another. In Ephesians 6, the armor of God's described, in it's shoes on the feet, it is a belt of truth around the waist, it is a breastplate of righteousness, uh, it's a shield of faith, a sword, and a helmet. There's nothing on the back side. There's nothing on the back side because when God calls you to do something, He calls you to lock arms with other brothers and sisters and accomplish it together. And there is no retreat. You don't ever back up. That's why it's, the imagery is that way. If there is a burden in your life that is overwhelming to you, run to the family of God. Don't be proud. Run for help. The devil always does, and I know I'm off subject, but... The devil does something. He begins to pull people away. He begins to pull them away and isolate them.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Uh, The demoniac says he was lonely and dwelt among the tombs. Every demon possession case you'll ever find is somebody that's alone. Mental illness stems. You ever wonder why people on the street are crazy? They're crazy because they're alone all the time. Man was made for fellowship. So the devil begins to isolate so that he can begin to work on you without the benefit of of your friends there. How many times have you ever had a stray thought you couldn't shake and somebody said, Eric, what are you talking about? Man, you love the Lord. <laughs> Get that out of your head. You're not a bad person or whatever it is. That's the body of Christ is supposed to do that. So run to your brothers that have the Spirit of God. Don't be shy about that. Don't hide in pride as if you have no need of help. All of us do. Having said that, Moses complained. God anointed 70 other men to rule with him. And, uh, this is what happens. He says in verse 18, Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For when you, for, uh, let's see, for tomorrow, when you will eat meat, the Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days, or five, or ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before Him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Here's a very important principle. And I'm just going to throw at you. You can chew on it for a while. Chew on it for a while. And think about it. God heard what they said and He didn't withhold it from them if what they really wanted was something other than God's will, if that's really what they were fighting and crying for, Lord, we don't want this manna, this food come from heaven, this God's will to us. We want something other than Your will. They fought for it enough and He said, fine, that's what you want? I'll give you so much of it, it comes out of your nose. Jesus is not going to make you fall in love with Him. He's not going to make you be obedient to Him. He's looking for people that are craving Him like you would a dessert, that are longing for Him. And if what you really want is your own will, He'll give you so much of your own will that it comes out of your nose. <laughs> Turn with me to Second Thessalonians. All the T's in the New Testament are together, so if you can get to the New Testament and find a book that starts with T, you can find Second Thessalonians. Now, say that, it'll take me an hour to find it. Watch. Good evening, Pop. In 2 Thessalonians, in the Thompson chain, by the way, this is page 1316. If you don't have the Thompson chain, you'll be tempted to get one if you sit and hear me preach long enough. In 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, we have this, Telling of what it will be like on the day of the Lord. And boy, doesn't everybody want to know that? Lord, what's our gathering together with you going to be like? I mean, they, we have raised up more teachers for us that have written more books about this subject than any other, and the best book I've ever found on it is right here in the letter that God gave us. But God begins to describe, Paul begins to describe people who perish on the day of the Lord. I want you to hear what he says, starting in uh, verse 9 of the second chapter. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because... Now get, get this. God desires that all men be saved. The Word says that. It even says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Okay, so if somebody ends up in hell, and we know that that was never God's desire, we want to know why people perish, don't we? Don't you want to know why somebody misses the glory of God? If, if God, if John 3.16 is true, if God so much loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, if that's true, isn't it important that we know why people perish? Well, He's going to tell us. They perished because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Friends, the first time I read that, I fell out of my chair. Delusion is a nice way to say a lie. They refused to love the truth, the manna or the will of God that He was trying to give them over and over and over. So God Himself sent them a lie. They didn't want the truth, so God sent them something that was not the truth so that they could not be saved. So you wonder, say, Golly, how do people end up in the kingdom of God or in eternal punishment? You either love the will of God, you love truth, you embrace it, or you don't and you receive some counterfeit. You crave some other food, and God will give you so much of it that it comes out of your nose. You ever had that human emotion? Maybe over a high school love, or maybe over your children, or something, where you want somebody to embrace you, and they keep stiff-arming you, and stiff-arming you, and stiff-arming you, until finally you go, well, (laughs) you don't want me, then you go on. Just get out. Go on. You know, there is an element of that that is godly. Jesus never begged anybody to follow him. He presented the truth. They either loved it and followed him or they didn't. He's considered in the Bible a great dividing line, a winnowing fork. You know what a winnowing fork is used for? A winnowing fork is a pitchfork. You stab the wheat after it's been beaten. You throw the wheat in the air. The kernels fall to the ground and the chaff blows off with the wind. The winnowing fork is an instrument of division. The Bible teaches that Jesus is that winnowing fork. And see, the the grain, it gets gathered into the storehouse. Those that love the truth that were responsive to Jesus get gathered into the storehouse. But the chaff gets burned with unquenchable fire. Golly, preacher, quit talking about that stuff. It bothers me. I hope it does. It bothers me. I make every day of my life a day that I tried to live for the Lord because it bothers me. And it should. So, are you saying that you serve God out of fear? I love the Lord enough to fear Him. I believe His Word is true. I've also found out that He's incredibly merciful, that He's compassionate, that His mercy abounds and His grace abounds. He's like a father that realizes you're going to screw it up about half the time, but as long as you're trying... He's right there to help you. The Bible says that He looks for those without husbands to give them husbands. He looks for those without fathers to give them fathers. He manipulates the circumstances of your life. He rigs the board so that you will find Him. But if you refuse to do His will, He'll give you a substitute. Well, saints, we don't want that substitute. And in John, when He teaches in John 4, and we're going to close with John 4, When He teaches that His food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work, I want you to remember this. Like you need food every day, you need the will of God. And it's not just enough to hear it, to see it on the table. You have to complete the meal. Just like when Daddy sat you at the table as a kid and you had to complete the entire meal and couldn't get up from the table, the kingdom of God is that way. You have to hear His will and you have to do it if you're going to make it in the kingdom. I'm going to read you one more paragraph just for the sake of being in a certain place in John when we pick back up. This is the 39th verse. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Him, they urged Him to stay with them and He stayed two days. And because of His words, many more Became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. I want to close with this thought Jesus was a Jew. Most Jews would not have entered this village because they were beneath the Jews in the Jewish mind. But not only was Jesus willing to go where others would not go, to a place that others thought was unclean, he went and found a woman that most people would consider to be a whore. And instead of condemning her, instead of rebuking her, he showed her love and displayed himself to her. I mean, just answered her every question, taught her. She goes back and says, he told me everything I ever did. And many more Samaritans got saved and he stayed there two days. Today, you're hearing the Word of God He's reaching from the heavens through his ambassadors to speak to you his word. He's not too good to come and be where you are. He's not too good to reach down and pick you up from where you are to help you out. The real question is, how do you respond to the truth when you hear it? Do you crave the truth and want to be pleasing to God? Or do you fall into another category because the gospel will not leave you in the middle? The gospel leaves a clear distinction for you. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.